Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you very much, Ashley. Good morning, Redemption. How are you? Good to see you. Uh, number one question asked of your pastor this morning was, uh, Frank, uh, kickoff is at 10.04. Will you be done by then? And the answer is no way. <laughs> That's funny to me. Anyway, all right. A uh, couple things. Um, well, a number of things. I'm sorry, I got more announcements, but the first one kind of near and dear to my heart uh, 29 years ago today, a young lady named Jackie Palfinier married a guy named Frank Switzer. So this is it's our 29th anniversary. Uh, it is clear, most people know, that God gave Jackie the gift of discernment the one time she didn't exercise it, and we celebrate it every year. So anyway, happy anniversary, sweetheart. I know you love this awkward moment of being embarrassed. Listen, uh, oh, one other thing before I get into some, just some dates, and if you have caffeine with you, take a sip now, because you'll need it. Um, I don't know, some of you have already noticed, obviously, by the bikes that are there, we have a bike rack now. We got that this week, so we got a bike rack over there if you want to ride your bikes to church, that's pretty cool. Uh, now, I have a number of dates that I really need to just bullet point kind of review with you very quickly that are important. So when you hear something that is of interest of you, take note of the date. First of all, 
October 16th is going to be a really big day for us. That's the day we transition from two services to three services. We'll be starting our 5 o'clock service on that day in the evening. And uh, just for that one Sunday, we're going to celebrate by after that service, we're going to be grilling uh, hamburgers and hot dogs and out on the patio, and we'll have a little gathering out on the patio. So we're going to do that. But also, frankly, of more importance on the 16th, we're going to do baby dedications. One thing that Redemption Arcadia has always been very good at is having babies. And so we're going to be... Um, God bless you all. And we're gonna, so we're going to be doing that on uh, the 16th. So you need to contact uh, Stephanie Shoemate or myself or somebody. Get, get in touch with somebody if you want to dedicate your child to, to uh, Christ and to uh, the gospel. Uh, that would be wonderful. And then we're going to follow that right up on the 23rd with baptisms. We're going to do baptisms on the 23rd between the 9 o'clock and the 1045 service out on the patio we cannot fit the baptistry, that horse trough thing that we have. We can't fit it up here, so we're going to do it out there. And then we're also going to do it um, prior or at, no, after the 5 o'clock service on, on the 23rd. Uh, coming up in two Sundays, on October 9th, we're going to have our first Start Here class in this new property. We have a lot of new people coming, a lot of people wanting to ask questions about uh, Redemption Church and Redemption Church Arcadia in particular. Uh, David Massey is going to be leading that after the second service on October 9th. And then to follow that up, that, that by the way, that start here will be like 45, 60 minutes, something like that. We'll give you some food as well. But we're going to follow that up on November 12th. We're going to have a membership class. Uh, we, we looked at the schedule. We can't do it four nights during a week, uh, during four successive weeks. So we're going to do an intensive again. Steve and Ann Wheeler have agreed to open up their home for us on Saturday, November 12th. So we're going to have a membership class. It'll be 9 o'clock until 2 o'clock. We'll feed you twice. We'll have a breakfast and a lunch. And uh, we're going to do everything in one Saturday in terms of membership. So if you have more questions, you can come. We're not going to take the blood oath or make you sign anything on that day. We're just going to let you come and kind of figure things out. I got a, lot, a few of you worried about the blood oath. I was kidding, all right? So, so very quickly, sorry so fast, but lots of stuff going on. So be sure to check our website, check our church calendar, talk to Stephanie, talk to uh, me when you get a chance. So the Sermon on the Mount, we continue today in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about this because I haven't worked the last two Sundays. So um, I, I've been thinking about this. It seems as though Jesus, uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters in Matthew, is saying something like this. The law, the law of God, is really about the heart, but you and I as human beings, we've made it about pride and ego. The law is really about our heart, getting, getting the gospel in our hearts, but we've made it about us. We've made it about pride and ego. Uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting, just a couple of random thoughts to start. I, I believe this, this is something that Lauren Kimmel said, uh, Cody's uh, wife, and, and eventually made its way to me, and I really liked it. She said that, um, you know, we've been teaching that, that the Sermon on the Mount is really a good discipleship uh, process or, or teaching good discipleship, and that is true. But it also appears in the Sermon on the Mount, especially, for instance, last week when Cody preached, that during this process of discipling, Jesus is also undiscipling us in many ways. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? He's, he's saying that we humans have so many ideas about what it means to be godly and what piety means and, and, and what it means to, to be a good person and all that. And Jesus is coming along and saying, mm, 
not quite, and so we're going to have to break you, sort of deconstruct some of those things, sort of undisciple you first before we can start discipling you. And I think that's true also in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to reread this passage, these 18 verses. Uh, I'm going to briefly review what they say, and I'll explain why I'm only going to briefly unpack the text this morning. I'll explain that later. And then we're just going to, I'm going to work very hard at trying to apply, apply, apply uh, this passage. So again, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18. Jesus is rolling. He just continues in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is interesting because he's been telling us about how to practice righteousness all along so far. The, first, the very first long chapter of Matthew, chapter 5, he's been telling us here, you need to practice these righteousness uh, deeds. You need to be righteous. But now he's saying, I- I'm concerned about how you're going to practice uh, those deeds of righteousness. So beware of practicing them with the herald's trumpet. Before you. That's essentially what he's saying. Thus, when you give to the needy, when you are uh, involved in almsgiving, uh, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. You see why they're giving? They're They're giving so that they're praised by others, so that they look good. Their giving is really about them. It's not about God and it's not about others. And Jesus is not happy uh, with that. Uh, Truly I say to you, they have received their award. They've already gotten it. But when you give to the needy, do do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners that they may be seen by others, making a big spectacle of their prayers, Jesus says. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They've been seen by everybody. They've gotten their popularity. They've gotten all their Facebook dings. But when you pray, that's me. I'm adding to the text there just in case you're wondering. Uh, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you do pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Greeks, the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also uh, have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is an interesting little addition to the Jewish pious pious culture of the day that Jesus is adding into this. And then verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. The herald's trumpets again. Truly, I say to you, they have, their, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So he's rolling right along in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's interesting, after a long chapter of telling us what to do, he now tells us don't do this stuff in a way that is a spectacle. Don't show off. 
Don't do these things for the wrong reasons. And notoriety and popularity and to make yourself feel good about yourself are all the wrong reasons. You are to shine your light. You are to be salt for sure. But you're to do it in humility. The minute you start to shine your light and you are salt in this world uh, as a way of promoting yourself and exalting yourself and getting rewards for yourself by others and being seen by others, the minute you do that, you have put a basket over your light and the light is ineffective. That's what he's saying. You need to practice these things with humility. That is the brightest shining light is when you just serve humbly and quietly. And then, by the way, he says, oh, there's four more things I would like you to do that would be really helpful. You should pray, you should fast, you should give, and you should forgive. Uh, many people call these specifically the spiritual disciplines that Christians should practice in their life, that, that we should be doing these things we, by the power of the Holy Spirit called by the resurrected Christ. Now, we considered all of these four things and this passage back in Advent, during our Advent series in December. And I realize that not all of you were here at that time, but you can go back and listen to the podcast. So I'm not going to spend time rehashing necessarily those things here. And next week, as a matter of fact, we don't move on from verse 18, but we come back and we're going to look specifically at the Lord's Prayer next week. So we're going to dive into that a little bit more next week. So I want to spend most of my time this morning just trying to apply this to our lives today. So here's the big idea for today. Piety is born of grace, not of will or ego. Piety is born of grace, not of will or ego. And we would define piety by the things that we do to serve others and to honor God. So historically, there were three uh, pillars of piety that the Jewish professional religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them, were called to practice. And that was prayer, almsgiving or generosity, and fasting. Those were three things that the professional Jewish religious people said, these are the things that we need to do to make sure that we're right with God. Uh, unfortunately, those three things are also things that you can do very easily with a herald's trumpet before you. And, and that's kind of a metaphor for what's really going on. In other words, these are three things that we can do to make sure that we get noticed for how wonderful we are. And how people might aspire to be like us rather than really being like their heavenly father. So those are the three pillars of piety. I think it's interesting that as Jesus reviews those pillars of piety, which he's saying these are good things. He's not saying they're not good things. You need to do these things. But I think it's funny that in the context of talking about those three pillars of piety, he slips in a fourth. Did you notice that? He slips in forgiveness. He slips that in as saying, look, these three pillars of piety really can't stand without this fourth pillar, which is forgiveness. And oh, by the way, let's talk about this idea of forgiveness because it's really important. In fact, I would say it's at the core of what the Christian faith is all about. We are to forgive. Why? Because God in Christ has already forgiven us, and he's forgiven us of everything. And isn't it, isn't it interesting how you and I, and I'll just speak autobiographically, especially me, how God has forgiven me for everything. And let me tell you something. I am a wretch. I am 
amazing grace. But he's forgiven me for everything, and yet I can still withhold my forgiveness for some rinky-dink little thing that somebody else has done against me. It ought not to be that way. Jesus says you can give, you can fast, and you can pray, but if you're harboring that resentment and that bitterness and that grudge in your heart, it's no good. It's of no use. You really don't know God. You don't know the forgiveness that you have. And oh, by the way, isn't it interesting that forgiveness is one of those things that really is pretty hard to practice with a herald's trumpet before you. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about trying to forgive people and then announcing it to the world so that you get all the accolades because you were nice enough to forgive? It's just kind of goofy and awkward. It's easier to do that with the giving and the praying and the fasting, but not when it comes to forgiving. This, the, the forgiving thing demands humility. It demands Submission, it demands the fact that there's something bigger and better than us. This is how important the forgiving is. And again, I am speaking autobiographically. Those of you who have known me for decades know that at one time I had a PhD in grudge holding. It wasn't recognized by any major research university, but it should have been, I'm telling you. And over the years, God has just worked so hard at softening my heart. And I will tell you, just like Paul says in Philippians 3, I have not achieved it yet. But the Spirit is working. And I push and pull with the Spirit all the time because, man, I know I've been wronged. And I know what righteousness is. And by the way, I need to hold you to that standard because I'm frank. Am I getting through to myself primarily? This is how important this is. This is the core of Christianity. God needs to work on every single person in here on this, including myself. And I'll tell you, this, this forgiveness thing really cuts to the core of some of my most precious idols in life. But it's really helpful and true. It's helpful in that I really desire, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not to make the mistake of giving my heart to things that do not deserve it, and certainly things that do not have the attributes and the character of the one true God. So it's helpful in that way. And it's also true in that, like most people, listen to this now, like most people, if I'm really seeking the truth, if, I'm, if, I, am, if I have integrity about the fact that I'm seeking truth, I need to be willing to receive truth with both discipline and joy, here you go, even when it contradicts my worldview. That's what receiving truth is really all about. It's hard. But that's what the Spirit does in our lives. So, there's a guy named Nicholas Walterstorff. I hope I don't have to say his name again. I've studied him many times. Um, I read his stuff, really good stuff. He's a, he's a biblical scholar, wonderful biblical scholar. He says that the, in the Bible, we find what he calls the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable, and here they are. It's the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. And, and, and he says that these are the four people that the Bible constantly calls God's people, you and I, to love and to serve and to consider and to look out for and to advocate for. Uh, not for us, not to build our resume. 
Not so that we can get on Facebook and, and grab all of the attention. Not so that we can sacrifice 140 characters on Twitter and do it there. Not that those things are bad. I'm just saying that's not the purpose. The purpose is because God has called us to do it and because he's forgiven us, we ought to do this for God. And, oh, by the way, we ought to be doing it for them because they really need it. Widows, orphans, immigrants, poor, they need help. They need help. I say this all the time. The gospel of God is for desperate people. We just don't realize how desperate we are, and that's a problem, because we are desperate. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, uh, Walter Storr says, we're called to serve these people as God's people. Now, that's what piety looks like, serving these people. That's really where the sort of the, the meat and potatoes of, of the definition of piety is. Here's the challenge for most of us. Most people believe that piety, so serving others, being a decent human being, most people believe that piety is a human characteristic that is manifest because you and I as human beings are basically good. That's what everybody tells us. That's what our culture tells us. Human beings were not born tabula rasa, blank slate, but we were born basically good. That if you go deep down enough in our hearts, you're going to find goodness in every single person. At the core, humans are good. This is an unquestioned truth in the public sphere and in our culture. Absolutely unquestioned. Yes, human beings mess up occasionally. You know, I'm not perfect. <laughs> we mess up occasionally. But even the worst of the worst are basically good. So there's a guy named Langdon, Langdon Giltke from a number of years ago. Little case study I want to give you this morning. He was one such person who firmly believed this. He was a Harvard graduate in 1940. And he graduated with a degree in philosophy. And he was also fluent in all the sciences. This guy was a smart, smart, smart person. And he had, by his own words, now these are all his words that I'm going to be using here, he had what he called a robust secular humanist belief that science is the answer to all questions, all problems, and all suffering that humans go through. That science would answer everything. Upon graduation from Harvard, he immediately left for China to do humanitarian work. Shortly after he got there, uh, Japan overran China during World War II, and he was quickly interned with 2,000 other non-Asian people in the dreaded Shantung compound concentration camp. There were many concentration camps there that, that the Japanese uh, interned non-Asian people in, uh, but this was maybe one of the, this is one of the most notorious, Shantung compound. Uh, the church that I led Years ago, the, first, the only church that I led prior to coming to Redemption, Paradise Valley Community Church, their founding pastor, uh, his family, they were missionaries to Japan during this time. He was six years old uh, when the Japanese interned him and his family in a uh, concentration camp in Japan, as a matter of fact. And he was there from the time he was six till the time he was nine. This is real serious stuff, Okay. So here's Gilkey in, in the Shantung compound. Very cramped conditions. He was given a cot, which was just barely wide enough for him to lay down on. And then he maybe had 10 or 12 inches on each side of his cot and about a foot and a half down at the bottom of the cot. This was his private space. This was his safe space. That was it. And believe me, it wasn't very 
safe. So Gilkey says that he had gone to China as a self-described humanist and secularist. Didn't believe in God or religion or anything. He said that religion and God were okay if that was your thing, but he absolutely did not believe that it was needed for a prosperous, compassionate, efficient working society. Why did he believe that? He said it's very simple. People are basically good. People are rational. People are fair. People are empathetic. People are compassionate. And people are loving. People don't need God or religion under any circumstances to be able to do any of those things. During his three years at Shantung, however, he became radically disillusioned with this worldview. All of the people, he said, every last one of them, he said all of them, secularists and religious, educated and uneducated, those who had scientific backgrounds, those who had literary backgrounds, and those who had no particular background at all, they were all cruel, selfish, corrupt, deceitful, and thieves. And as I said, both secular and religious people were a mess. But he writes this, the only difference between those two was that the religious people were much better at justifying and rationalizing their poor behavior, often by spiritualizing it. This was the first time, he said he realized, the first time, and eventually came to the conclusion that people are sinful, that they're filled with sin. That human nature is not bent towards goodness, but it is awash in corruption. And here you go. He came to this conclusion because there was no empirical evidence to the contrary. And he was a scientist, and he was following the evidence, and he could not dispute this one little bit. And by the way, look around our world and our nation today. Is this not also true today? Can we look at all of the stuff that's happening right now and seriously come to the conclusion that people are basically good? Can we do that with a straight face? I don't see how we can. I don't see how. He came to the conclusion that people are not basically good but occasionally mess up, but rather people are basically bad and they rarely don't mess up. Here's what Gilkey writes. Our problems in the Shantung compound were almost never created or caused by our Japanese captors. Rather, they were created and caused by our own sinful behavior. He also began to realize that religion, education, science, and ding, 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 politics cannot change people from bad to good. All the things that we think can help in this area. All these things that we think can change human nature when human nature really does need to be changed, he says they're of no use. Politics. Can I say it again? Politics, y'all. Th these, these candidates, okay, I understand we should be involved in the political process, but they are not the Messiah. By the, here you go. Okay, Jay Leno said, if God intended for us to vote, he would have given us candidates. There, I threw it in there, all right? So, <laughs> Education, science, whatever it is. Furthermore, now here you go. Here's where we really get to the core of the matter. Furthermore, perhaps he said most devastatingly for him, he discovered that although he had always considered himself a good person, he found out that he was selfish, angry, spiteful, and cruel. And he was deeply ashamed of his behavior, but he said, I never stopped the behavior. I couldn't stop the behavior. I couldn't stop it. Then something else happened. He eventually met a guy named Eric Lydell. Anybody ever heard that name before? 
He was the 1924 400-meter gold medal champion in the Olympics, and he was the subject of the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire, which won Best Picture that year. Lydell eventually ended up in the Shantung compound. He was a Protestant missionary from Scotland. And as Gilkey got to know Lydell, he found that in the midst of all this darkness, Eric Lydell was the one person who overflowed, he writes, with joy, good humor, peace, kindness, and initiative for others. Lydell was the one that was constantly looking out for others, especially the teens at the camp. It's like he had his own little youth group at the, at the Shantung compound. Lydell was actually living out the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. He was doing it in the worst possible conditions. Gilkey writes this, I don't think we would have survived without Eric Lydell. So Gilkey, being the philosopher and the scientist that he is, he began to ask some penetrating questions. He said, why is Eric Lydell different? And he came to this conclusion. He said, it wasn't religion. Religion can only do two things. It can, it can turn yourself inward in pride when you think that you have accomplished something religious and it turns into self-righteousness, or it turns you inward in guilt and shame when you can't accomplish it. Either way, all religion does is focus on you and turn yourself inward. He says religion's not the answer. Here's a summary of Gilkey's thoughts. Religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism and selfishness is solved. Rather, it is the place where the ultimate battle between man's pride and God's grace takes place. Humans may win the battle and give in to religion, but then religion simply becomes one more instrument of sin. That is so true. But if one meets God and his grace and finally surrenders to something beyond self-interest, then the Christian faith proves to be the needed and rare recluse from human self-concern. So he says, if you see religion as just one more way to earn your salvation, then you're going to become proud and selfish when you think you've made it, filled with self-righteousness and looking down your nose at all those people who don't measure up to you. Or when you can't keep the law, you're going to sink into devastating shame and guilt because you realize that you can't measure up. But again, the problem is, is the focus is all on you. But Jesus, there you go, two most important words, but Jesus. But Jesus, who surrendered all, and surrendered himself for others at the cross. He allows us to be released from the prisons of pride and self-righteousness, from the prisons of guilt and shame, so that we may humbly love and serve others. Our problem, y'all, is sin. And the only answer to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other. Jesus said, it is finished. In the end, Gilkey went on to become a Protestant minister, earning his divinity degree from Union Theological Seminary in New York, which is where Jackie's, one of Jackie's grandfather, uh, grandfathers got his advanced degrees as well. And so that is, that is Landon Giltke's story. And in the end, he argued tirelessly for the rational coexistence between faith and science, seeing them both as God-ordained and complementary, not at odds. Gilkey's Pillars of piety adherence was motivated not by man, not by guilt, not by shame, not by science, not by education, not by secularism, and not by his supposed nature of goodness, but rather it was motivated by grace. Motivated by grace. 
Now let me take the last few minutes to update this thought, try and make it a little bit more contemporary and applicable in our context. And I think it's good that we're doing it today because there seems so far in this service to be a real emphasis on marketplace ethics and Christianity. There are four things that Jesus is asking us to do here. Pray, fast, give, be generous, and to forgive others. Last week, just as by way of review, Jesus told us we should, need, we should not murder neither in heart nor deed. We should not commit adultery neither in heart nor deed. That we're to honor our marriage vows. That we shouldn't lie or bear false witness. That we must love our enemies. Yeah, even the schmuck who stabs you in the back at work. We need to love our enemies. And we don't seek revenge. Revenge is left up to God. We instead, we instead I love the way Cody put this, we engage in radical kindness. Because that's what God engaged in with us. And also, Cody said last week, I love the way he put this. He said, yeah, Jesus raised the standard. What he did was he took us to the seed of righteousness. He said, he said we're not going to look at the behavior of righteousness. That's not the bare minimum. The bare minimum is to go to the seed of righteousness, which is in our hearts. That's where the Holy Spirit lives if we're in Christ. And that's where righteousness uh, starts. And that we're called to live this way, not out of behavior, but because our hearts are right with Jesus. So here's where we need to understand, in my opinion, the importance of grace and relationship. This is critical to us. Grace and relationship, they go hand in hand. You know, I'm sure you know this. You can have, you can have laws and rules without relationship, right? We, we can be in no relationship with people and we can engage in compliance and compulsion and all those things, which, by the way, I would argue eventually lead to resentment, bitterness, and rebellion. So we can have this stuff without relationship, but Jesus is telling us that because of our relationship with him, one that is based in his love for us and his sacrifice for us, he's not, in fact, making following the law easier, but rather he's taking us to the power to be able to follow the law. He's saying, here is where it is. This is what you need. What power is there in just laws and rules without grace and relationship? What power is there? Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, there is sin in the law. That's where the power is. There's sin in the law. Rebellion, mandates, compulsion, compliance, that just leads to sin. It just leads to rebellion. Now, the law is good, no doubt. I thought Cody did an excellent job of making this point last week. These are good things. The law is good. But the law really doesn't by itself, it really doesn't give us the power to keep it. And that's the problem. The law is God's will, God's wisdom, God's love, God's heart, God's character, and God's life practice revealed to us. And it is all good but we need a means to be able to accomplish it. Well, if that's true, how does the law serve us? Because it points us to him. It points us to relationship with Jesus, the one who has come and given us relationship. Jesus is not making the law harder to follow. He's showing us where the power of grace and relationship is to actually begin to live the law. Not just follow it, but live it. Here's a, just a personal example, and I in no way give you this example to exalt myself, and it's a tiny little itsy-bitsy little example. I just, I just was fascinated with how this worked, though, and I want to share it with you, just trying to understand this heart thing. Uh, so this last summer, as you know, I was gone for like 
six months or something. It was, we, we had our youngest daughter get married, and then um, we had a week between that at the camp in Iowa that we go to every summer, where Jackie was part of the crew to teach all the sports camps that week. And then the following week started Family Camp 3 at Village Creek Bible Camp, which I have been the pastor of for the last 20 years, for, so for that week. So it was gone three weeks. We had the wedding, volleyball camp where I wasn't doing anything, and then the camp where I was leading. So during that week of the volleyball camp, the athletic camps when Jackie was doing volleyball, I decided that I would volunteer in the kitchen and help do dishes. I was trying to give some of the regular summer staff a little bit of break because they don't get much of a, a break. And it's not unusual, frankly, for volunteers at the camp to be helping up at the camp. I wasn't doing anything special. I also had some restaurant experience. I don't know if anybody knows. I do have some restaurant experience from years and years ago, but it was 30 years ago. But as I walked into the kitchen and said, I want to help during the me- after the meals and, and do some dishwashing, I know that there are rules in the kitchen, right? Even for dishwashers and bussers, there are rules. But it's been almost 30 years, so I have no idea what the updated rules are. F- uh, furthermore, the summer staff at these camps, have you ever been to a summer camp? The staff, so summer staffs are really young, high school and college, right? Mostly high school and college. So when I started in there, I explained very clearly to them, some of these kids I've known for years, I explained very clear to them that, that, that um, I wanted to be corrected every time they saw me doing something wrong. They need to correct me because I had a desire to do it right. Please tell me. Now, sometimes young people struggle with correcting older people, and rightfully so, because we older peeps tend to get miffed when you younger people correct us. <laughs> so you're a little reticent sometimes to do that, and I understand that, okay? So anyway, there's a staff each meal of six people doing dishes for 300 people after each meal. It was hard work, but it was really fun because of the energy and community, but it was hard. So in, in, the, in the kitchen, they have uh, aprons, and, and they have two sets of aprons, I learned eventually. There are white aprons and blue aprons. Anybody know the difference? Okay, the white aprons are for people who are only handling clean dishes, and the blue aprons are for people only handling dirty dishes. And if you're handling dirty dishes, you can't handle clean, and if you're handling clean, you can't handle dirty. That's one of the rules. So I'm in there, and the first day, they give me a blue apron. I didn't know the difference. I'm out there bussing tables. That's what I'm doing. I'm bussing all the tables, bringing the carts back, scraping the dishes, and getting them ready for all of uh, the dishwashers. The second day, I walked in, and I put on a white apron. And immediately, Nick Johnson walks up to me, and he's all nervous, and he goes, mm, you're going to be busting, right? Yeah, dirty dishes, right? Well, you can't have on a white apron. There's no white aprons for the dirty dishes. Got to take off the, I'm sorry, you got to take off the white apron and put on a blue apron. Now, I made a little joke in the moment. I said, I, I, wait a minute, I thought we were under grace. <laughs> Seems to me this kitchen is still under the law. What's wrong with these people But I want to tell you something. I was happy to do it. It was small, but I I was happy to do it. I wanted to know every single regulation because I desired joyfully to do it right. Not because I wanted to be a rule follower. Who wants to really be known as a rule follower? And what good is there in following rules? There's no real joy in following rules. A lot of pride, yes, when you keep them, and shame when you don't. But because the gospel calls me into relationship with the one who sacrificed everything for me, the gospel also calls me to live joyously and to live 
uh, in a way where I do my work well, not as a rule follower, but because I'm in relationship with the one who saved me. And to do it correctly. And oh, by the way, to do it in the marketplace. And to do it without whining. Because we want to. I no longer recoil from the rules and the law, but rather I desperately want to follow them. And not even just follow them, but to live them. I want to live them. Because God has given me that power to be able to do that. Even in the camp kitchen. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Submit your will to God's will. And submit yourselves out of reverence for Christ to everyone else. Out of reverence for Christ. This is where the power is. Paul says, out of reverence for Christ. That is the key. And what did Jesus do? What did he submit to? Something that you and I will never submit to. The cross. To being punished for sin that he never committed. That's where the power is. The gospel inspires and empowers us to live with joy and gratitude when we do our work. And we can do it the best we can all the time, every time. We are now the incarnation of God in this world. That's who we are. We're God's people. In his excellent book, Anatomy of the Soul by Kurt Thompson, which I recommend to everybody, he says it like this. What would life be like for us if we not only assented to Jesus' message of good news, but also realized just how true it is? Imagine that the gospel is not primarily about a set of facts, although facts are involved. That the gospel is not about meeting the right behavioral standards, although behavior is involved. But rather, we finally come to grips with the reality that the gospel is the declaration of a relationship. A declaration that we are known and known by God. The good news is that Jesus has shown us a new way to be human. Jesus himself knew and felt his father's love and made choices because he knew and believed that love to be true. That's the love that Jesus has for us. That's the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That's the reality that God knows us. And so we can make these same choices to work well and within the standards and requirements, not because they're mandated, but because we have a relationship with him, big capital H, him. And he's given us the heart to do it. And that's why in the marketplace, though it's hard and sometimes costly, that's why we do what's right. We live by God's law because we are loved and we love him. Let me pray. Lord God, again, we thank you for the teaching of Jesus. We thank you that though it was really hard to hear then and really hard to hear now, Jesus has also come to give us the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to live as he calls us to live. So I pray that you would give us these hearts to be able to do that. I pray for everybody here who understands this and embraces this in church, just like I do, but that all of us, all of us, including the leadership and the elders and the pastors and the staff of this church, that when we go out into the marketplace in the public sphere, that we would live the gospel out there as well. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.